From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. Last weekend's decision by the International Court of Justice was seen as a victory by many. South Africa and the Palestinian Authority saw it as a vindication, as orders have been made to prevent any genocidal acts in Gaza, and the ICJ will move towards a full trial. Others heralded it as a win for Israel, with the court refusing to make an order for the end of military action against Hamas. Today, expert in international law and professor of law at the University of California, Davis, Shemen Keitner, on what the ICJ really considered and what their interim decision means. It's Wednesday, January 31st. Shaman, we now have the first ruling of the International Court of Justice in this case alleging genocide in Gaza. But to understand what the ruling really means, I want to start by asking about the litigation that South Africa filed. How did this come about and what was South Africa arguing? This is indeed a, a case brought under the Genocide Convention, which is a treaty that is almost as old as the United Nations itself. So after World War II, uh, in addition to creating the United Nations, countries got together and worked on a number of really important human rights instruments. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. And not long after many countries ratified a binding treaty prohibiting genocide, really trying to make very robust the international law prohibition, both on the act of genocide, but also the whole sort of support apparatus for the attempted eradication of the Jewish population in Europe, to which all of this uh, was reacting. That the physical extermination of human groups is of such grave and legitimate international concern that the international society is justified in branding genocide as a crime under international law. So in the treaty itself, in the Genocide Convention, most of the countries that have signed up for this treaty have also agreed that the International Court of Justice in The Hague will be the decision maker if disputes arise under this treaty. Uh, And so South Africa decided uh, that it would essentially take up the cause of the Palestinian people use this treaty under which Israel had agreed to the jurisdiction of the international court and try to put additional pressure on Israel to stop the actions that, in South Africa's argument, violate the Genocide Convention. The court meets today and will meet tomorrow under Article 74, Paragraph 3 of the Rules of Court to hear the oral observations of the parties on the request for the indication of provisional measures submitted by the Republic of South Africa in the case concerning application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in the Gaza Strip. So South Africa eventually would like the International Court of Justice to declare that Israel has violated the Genocide Convention. But at this stage, what it was doing earlier this month was trying to get the court to say that there is enough of a chance of violating the treaty to find that it was plausible 
that Israel has violated one or more provisions in the convention, which include uh, provisions uh, requiring that Israel prevent, not commit, and not allow the incitement of genocide. Uh, and if that was plausible, that opened the door to the court to issue some binding orders. Genocide is a very specific crime under international law. And in order for conduct to amount to genocide, whether that conduct is killing people, seriously harming them, displacing them, uh, preventing births within a group, all of those acts are only genocidal if they're committed with the specific intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. Right. And I guess what you're describing, it, it sounds like a challenging task for South Africa as genocide is this very specific crime with very defined parameters, particularly around intent to destroy a population. How exactly did South Africa go about presenting its argument to the court? Well, I think there are, again, two reasons that South Africa used the Genocide Convention. And the, the big reason is that this is the only treaty that would let it get into court to begin with, right? Um, but the other reason, of course, is uh, South Africa is very much trying to make a point that what Israel is doing, in its view, is not simply in the realm of war crimes, but rather does have this specific intent. Uh, and I think South Africa has, has said two things. One, it has said, look at the scale of the devastation. Palestinians in Gaza are being killed by Israeli weaponry and bombs from air, land, and sea. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation, dehydration, and disease as a result of the ongoing siege by Israel. The so South Africa was able to paint a picture of devastation on the ground and it attempted to link that devastation on the ground to comments that have been made uh, by various Israeli figures. The evidence of genocidal intent is not only chilling, it is also overwhelming and incontrovertible. On 9 October, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, gave a situation update to the army where he said that as Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza, there would be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything would be closed because Israel is fighting human animals. In fact, Heritage Minister Amichai Eliyahu said that Israel must find ways for Gazans that are more painful than death. And remember, incitement to genocide and failure to prevent and punish incitement is also a, a violation of the Genocide Convention. So already there, uh, you've got a foot in the door, so to speak, for the international court uh, to take this case. But South Africa goes much further and says, no, 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 this is not just talk. Uh, it's really uh, evidence, further evidence, that what Israel is doing is animated by an intent to destroy the Palestinian people. Uh, so that was essentially the narrative that we heard uh, on the first day of hearings. And then, of course, Israel had a quite different narrative to offer uh, when its three hours uh, of argument uh, came around. Yeah, let's talk about how Israel approached their side of the argument. It happened on the second day of public hearings. And I guess their task was to argue that Israel's actions in Gaza constituted 
a, a defence of its people. What was their case exactly? Absolutely. And so Israel, uh, I think, uh, talked a lot about its efforts to ensure the provision of some humanitarian aid, the problems of Hamas uh, requisitioning humanitarian aid that has been provided. But its presentation was almost entirely focused, of course, on October 7th and on the threat posed by Hamas. What proceeded under the cover of thousands of rockets fired indiscriminately into Israel was the wholesale massacre, mutilation, rape and abduction of as many citizens as the terrorists could find. Uh, And so what Israel said, first of all, is that the allegation of genocide in its view is, uh, I think the words used have been outrageous, Uh, I think for Israelis in particular, given that the state of Israel was established as a homeland for the very people who were persecuted and killed during the Holocaust, uh, which gave rise to the Genocide Convention. Uh, I really do think it is literally unimaginable for many people in Israel to find themselves on the receiving end of, of a claim under the Genocide Convention. To their minds, the genocidal actor here is very clearly Hamas. That if there have been acts that may be characterized as genocidal, then they have been per- perpetrated against Israel. If there is a concern about the obligations of states under the Genocide Convention, then it is in relation to their responsibilities to act against Hamas's proudly declared agenda of annihilation, which is not a secret. They expressed deep regret for the civilian suffering in Gaza, but I think their attitude still, uh, and certainly as expressed during the hearing, was that they have no choice, that the only way in their view to protect their population from another October 7th, uh, and they certainly quoted Hamas leaders saying that their plan is to attack Israel again and again, uh, that their only way to protect their population is to uh, decimate Hamas as a, a military force. And in its view, its calls on, on the population in Gaza to evacuate huge areas is not an attempt at forced displacement, uh, but rather complying with its obligation under international humanitarian law to attempt to warn civilians uh, of attacks that are coming. So I think, in, again, in Israel's view, it feels very strongly that that any attempt to portray what it's doing as genocidal, when in its view, it is doing everything it can to comply with the laws of war, is why it is taking this case so seriously. Both narratives were presented in great deal to the court, and as you can tell, they they don't have much overlap, uh, the one and the other. So we really did get two diametrically opposed views of what the judges should be looking at and how they should be thinking about this conflict. I, I will say, I think that the court's judgment did a fairly good job at perhaps sort of knitting these narratives back together. And what was remarkable to me is the court came back virtually unanimous. After the break, will the court's ruling change what's happening on the ground? This year, the Saturday paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. 
In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. It's the essential account of the week in politics, culture and news. When you read the Saturday paper, you don't need to read anything else. Subscribe today from just $2.10 per week. Visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. The Saturday Paper. The whole story. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Shaman, we've been talking about this historic case at the International Court of Justice, and last Friday the world was watching closely as this panel of 17 judges handed down the first interim ruling. What did the judges say? The court came back in less than two weeks, so it, it really handled this request on a very expedited basis, um, as it is required to do when there's a, a provisional measures request. The judges essentially said that Israel is going to have to be very careful going forward because it is plausible that Israel has been violating some portions of the Genocide Convention and ordering it to take a number of steps to make sure uh, that it complies with international law. The court concludes prima facie that South Africa has standing to submit to it the dispute with Israel concerning alleged violations of obligations under the Genocide Convention. Okay, and can you explain what those orders were and what they'll mean in a practical sense for this conflict going forward? Absolutely. So um, it's interesting because as you would expect in an adversarial proceeding, the parties are already spinning them in slightly different ways. Um, So there's a multi-part order, essentially. Uh, Two parts of the order are directed specifically to Israel reminding of it of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. In the present situation, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention in particular. And so what I mean about spin is that uh, South Africa would say you wouldn't need to remind Israel of its obligations under the Genocide Convention if the judges didn't think Israel was violating the Genocide Convention. Uh, on the other hand, Israelis would say, well, you know, it's, it's fine. The court is just telling us to do what we know we have an obligation to do already. And so they're sort of superfluous, um, but also you know, not going to change our behavior uh, necessarily. So that the first two orders remind Israel and order Israel. So this is a legally binding order. Again, though, that replicates Israel's existing obligations under the Genocide Convention to prevent and punish genocide and to ensure that its military does not commit uh, any of those actions. Then the next uh, orders were actually indicated uh, on, on a vote of 16 to 1 and requires Israel to provide immediate and effective access for humanitarian aid and to prosecute and punish incitement to genocide. The last two orders, again, passed by a vote of 15 to 2, 
uh, require Israel not to destroy any evidence or potential evidence of genocide. Again, a requirement that Israel should abide by in any event. And then finally, a requirement that Israel submit a report on its compliance with these orders in a month. The state of Israel shall submit a report to the court on all measures taken to give effect to this order within one month as from the date of the order. Right. So how does the ICJ enforce these orders? Are there mechanisms to make sure Israel actually abides by them? The focus in the last couple of days has has shifted to that reporting requirement. This is the way in which the court would enforce its order. It doesn't have a police force. <laughs> it doesn't have uh, you know, the ability to, to send Israel somehow to, to some other international mechanism other than the United Nations Security Council. But the United Nations Security Council is divided over this conflict, uh, and it has had tremendous difficulty uh, issuing resolutions that have made it past the U.S. veto on the Security Council. But I do think in a lot of areas of international law, these reporting requirements, you know, forcing countries to sit down and explain what they're doing and why it's lawful can uh, affect their conduct. And my hope is that the court's order will, will play a constructive role in enabling other countries to pressure Israel to abide by its obligations, not only under the Genocide Convention, um, but also under the laws of war. And finally, Shimon, there is now a, a trial due at, at some point, and trials for genocide are rare, and this case in particular is politically significant as well. Um, more broadly, how significant will this case be for international law itself and, I guess, the, the public perception of it? Uh, that, that's a really fascinating question, and I think, again, the the era that we're in now of countries using treaties like the Genocide Convention and using the international court to try and pressure other countries to comply with their obligations is a really interesting development. And I think the more seriously Israel takes this uh, and the more we see it empowering decision makers to really put pressure on Israel to, again, think twice about the humanitarian toll of its actions, Uh, the the more successful it will be. The determination whether Israel has violated or is violating any of the provisions of the Genocide Convention now moves to uh, the next phase. And then South Africa will be engaged in uh, presenting much more extensive evidence. And under the court's existing jurisprudence, there's actually a very high standard for a finding of genocide. And so if Israel can persuade the court that it had a valid reason uh, to call on civilians to evacuate northern Gaza, to target hospitals and schools uh, that it alleges Hamas was using uh, as bases, to conduct uh, such a full-scale air operation in, in the wake of the October 7th attacks, and given uh, how entrenched and extensive Hamas's network, particularly underground, has turned out to be, then under the current legal standard, it's actually quite unlikely that the court would find that Israel has in fact engaged in acts of genocide, given uh, that alternative explanation. But I think the fact that this case will remain pending has put Israeli decision makers on notice 
and will hopefully create some real pressure for them to weigh the civilian catastrophe that has been created uh, differently as they're making their military decisions. Shimren, there's been so much to unpack and to make sense of, but thank you so much for your expertise and for speaking with me today. It's been a lovely conversation. From the Saturday paper comes The Food, a free weekly newsletter featuring curated recipes from some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle and Karen Martini. Cook what they cook by subscribing today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Also in the news today, the Nine Network has apologised for digitally altering an image of a Victorian MP after she called out the editing as sexist. The doctored image of Georgie Purcell, which was used in a bulletin, altered the MP's clothing to be more revealing and enlarged the size of her chest. Nine's news director blamed automation on Photoshop for the mistake. And a council in Melbourne is considering permanently removing a monument of Captain Cook after the memorial was vandalised multiple times. The memorial in Edinburgh Gardens in the city's inner north was overturned on Monday and spray-painted with the words, Cook the Colony. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again with more tomorrow. Tomorrow.